Welcome back. Monday, June 26, 2023. I am Seth Liebson. We've got our producer, David Dahl, right at my uh, 12 o'clock. And we've got our operations deputy director, Bill, at my 3 o'clock, both protected by many levels, a passel of levels of bulletproof glass. While a ton of attention was put on Russia this weekend and the incipient coup against Vladimir Putin, the analysis is, and probably should be, all over the place. Does it show Putin's vulnerabilities and weakness and lack of support that it commenced? That's one read. Or does it show he's as strong as ever and that he ended it without firing a shot? We'll talk to Brandon Weikert for his take, but none of that should overshadow or be used to overshadow what is fast becoming an undeniable scandal for Merrick Garland and the U.S. Attorney David Weiss, who investigated Hunter Biden. Recall, an IRS whistleblower, whose name we know, and another, whose name we don't, have several times expressed their incredulity that Weiss told them he did not have full prosecuting authority. The meaning of that is someone above him was calling the shots. The only one above him would be a political appointee in the Department of Justice or the Attorney General. The Attorney General, Merrick Garland, said to the press last week it simply was untrue that David Weiss didn't have the full authority. But now the IRS whistleblower has shown emails corroborating corroborating his story that David Weiss says he didn't have the authority. And the whistleblower's attorney has put out a letter further substantiating those emails. Weiss and Garland need to be called to testify. In the interim, Garland is playing the role not of attorney general, but of a king. In a press conference last week, Garland said, quote, I certainly understand that there are those who have chosen to attack the integrity of the Justice, Justice Department. This constitutes an attack on an institution that is essential to American democracy and essential to the safety of the American people, close quote. In any normal world or normal America with a normal media, that is a shocking thing for the attorney general or any public official to say. An attack on the institution? That is an incredible thing to say, just as it was when Anthony Fauci said, to question me is to question science. Or the New England Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern speaking to members of the press about the COVID-19 pandemic, saying, quote, we will continue to be your single source of truth unless you hear it from us. It is not the truth, close quote. One can no longer question the integrity of the Justice Department without it being an attack on our democracy. When did that rule get issued? Was that true when Jeff Sessions was the attorney general? Or John Ashcroft, or Ed Meese, or John Mitchell, or William Barr? To question the integrity of a political or public official is akin to attacking the essence of American democracy and the safety of the American people. Is he the Sun King? The state is me? Is this not the clearest insight into a man who can launch local and federal law enforcement against parents showing up at school board meetings because they question the curriculum, calling them domestic terrorists for doing so? What level of First Amendment protection does the press think it has with an attorney general who can say such a thing? No more op-eds criticizing the department? No stories investigating it? What level of the First Amendment does Merrick Garland think abides in this country when to question the operations of a federal agency is akin to undermining democracy and American safety? 
Does Merrick Garland believe, like so many others on the left, that words are violence? And if so, why have a First Amendment? He did say it's an attack on American democracy and the safety of the American people. Attack must mean something. An attack is usually violent. As I say, in a normal America with a normal press, they'd be all over this, all over it. But they aren't, because they agree with him, mutatis mutandus. What is the mutatis and what is the mutandus? That to question a Democratic Party attorney general or a Democratic Party-run Department of Justice is a threat to democracy. To question a Republican Party attorney general or a Republican Party-run Department of Justice is what the First Amendment and the free press is for. Because everything in our opinion, principle, hierarchy, or regime hierarchy is that Democrats must be the only part to govern, the only party to govern, and Republicans can never govern. They, after all, are a party of fascism and fear, as the chairman of the DNC routinely says, or an existential threat to the country and the Constitution, as is routinely said by, at varying times, Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Adam Schiff, Kamala Harris, Jerry Nadler, Chuck Schumer, and any given host on CNN or MSNBC. To them, civil liberties only belong to one party. The New York Times takes a slightly different view altogether. One of their chief op-ed writers of long standing, Nicholas Kristof, to his credit, does take the Hunter Biden set of scandals seriously and wrote about them over the weekend. In the sense that Evil Knievel talked about motorcycle safety or Harvey Weinstein took women's rights seriously or Jeffrey Epstein was involved in children's, children's rights issues. Here's what Kristoff wrote, quote, The real meaning of the Hunter Biden saga, as I see it, isn't about presidential corruption, but is about how widespread addiction is and how about a determined parent with unconditional love can sometimes reel a child back, close quote. Aha, that's the meaning here. Not the cautionary tale of addiction, by the way, but its normalization, and not the cocaine, or the meth, or the prostitution, or the prostitution rings, or the weapons, or the discharge from the military, or the relationship with his brother's widow, or the avoidance of child support for a child the grandfather does not show unconditional or any love or recognition to, or the influence peddling with corrupt and communist countries based on his father's elected positions. No! The real meaning is Joe Biden's love. Good thing we have the New York Times to remind us of that and set us straight, lest we look at the wrong meanings of the story. Alicia Finley, writing about Robert Kennedy Jr. in today's Wall Street Journal, gets at something very important to help explain our times. First, go back a few weeks to when I was citing Abe Greenwald's point that if the media thinks they're going to take down Donald Trump by citing his alternative or fake facts about things, it's not going to happen because everyone lies now. We live in an age of bipartisan institutional, cross-cultural fabrication, he wrote, and went on. And we're talking whoppers here. Public health officials lied about the necessity of school closures and the efficacy of masks, two opposite mask lies at different times. The bureaucratic and media elite lied about the likely origins of COVID-19. The press lied about the peaceful nature of BLM riots. 
Twitter lied about its policies. The entire medical and psychological establishment lies about the differences between male and female. It's not just the establishment that lies. In response to these official lies, anti-establishment types tell lies of their own. They lie about the safety of vaccines. They lie about Russian and Ukrainian deaths. And we can't forget Joe Biden, who lies when he whispers and lies when he shouts. The president lies about everything from his policy record to his relationship with his son to his academic credentials. Biden has told three different lies about being arrested. In one, it was for civil rights activism. In another, it was for trying to see Nelson Mandela. In yet another, it was for sneaking into a women's dorm. Lying isn't special. It's the default mode of public debate in the 21st century. So, Alicia Finley today on RFK Jr., which may help us understand Merrick Garland's civil tyrannical mindset and the press's insouciance over it. Quote, progressive beliefs, no matter how preposterous, are beyond question. Views that cut against the grain, even those that are scientifically well-founded, are silenced and labeled as misinformation. Justified criticisms of COVID lockdowns have been peremptorily dismissed as baseless in much the same way as Mr. Kennedy's questionable vaccine claims. The press has become so partisan that it has lost all credibility with a large share of the public. As a result, Americans don't trust the media to tell them what's true and not, and they become more susceptible to falsehoods from other sources. This trust vacuum, together with social media censorship, fuels public cynicism and candidates who seek to exploit it. Close quote. Just right. If the media and the Democrats truly don't want cynicism, or even conspiracy theories, they, not, they need to stop fueling them with their own derelictions of duty and conspiracy theories and covers up, cover-ups and justifications of lies, all the while mendaciously claiming neutrality and nonpartisanship. As the whistleblower scientists put it in Chernobyl, when the truth offends, we lie and lie until we can no longer remember it is even there, even when it is. He will point out, of course, that we can no longer even recognize it. And so we've reached a rather dangerous point in America when you put this all together. Truth is not truth. It is a game of Humpty Dumpty power put in the service of defining it for the purposes of of political outcomes. I suppose every political leader is always tempted in that direction, which is how we popularized the notion of political spin or spinning the truth. But we live and lived with this for a long time, but only with the watchman on the tower who would espy the trouble and blow us warnings. In our system, that was the media, the press, which is why they were the only institution specifically mentioned to receive First Amendment protection. But they've abdicated that responsibility. They've dishonorably discharged themselves of their mission, role, and duty, and then turn around and ask why our polity, our democracy as they put it, is so unhealthy. Really quite astounding when you think of it, but they do it with a straight face. As Merrick Garland says what he says with a straight face, because the job is ideological unity, nothing more, nothing less. But that is not a democracy. And so it turns out there really are existential threats to it and the Constitution, but they come from those who are making the charges these days, not those who they are charging. 
I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It's kind of perfect that that song is what uh, brought us in here because uh, it was written by Bob Dylan for Johnny Cash. And the biggest Bob Dylan fan I know posed a question to me today that he thought would be good to pose to the audience. Let's try it this way, young David. What happened on this day 60 years ago? 60 years ago. Yeah. So we're... Talking 1963. Yeah. John Kennedy became the first president to stand on the west side of the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall. And denounce totalitarianism. (laughs) Yes. This is our chat GPT, or this is the precursion we engage in here. Kennedy called the wall the most obvious and vivid demonstration of the failures of the communist system for all the world to see. Here's what he said, and I'll give you the question from my friend. Here's what John Kennedy said. There are many people in the world who really don't understand or say they don't. What is the great issue between the free world and the communist world? Let them come to Berlin. There are some who say that communism is the wave of the future. Let them come to Berlin. Freedom has many difficulties, and democracy is not perfect, but we have never had to put a wall up to keep our people in, to prevent them from leaving us. The Berlin Wall is an offense not only against history, but an offense against humanity, separating families, dividing husbands and wives and brothers and sisters, and dividing a people who wish to be joined together. Freedom is indivisible. And when one man is enslaved, all are not free. When all are free, then we can look forward to that day when this city will be joined as one in this country and this great continent in a peaceful and hopeful globe. When that day finally comes, as it will, the people of West Berlin can take sober satisfaction in the fact that they were in the front lines for almost two decades. All free men, wherever they may live, are citizens of Berlin. And therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the words... I am a Berlineric benign Berliner. The question my friend asked was, could you put that statement together? What's the great issue between the free world and the communist world? Um, that freedom has many difficulties and democracy is not perfect, but we've never had to put up a wall to keep our people in to prevent them from leaving us. Um, could, you, could you pose those words? to any current Democrat and have them agree with them. That there is a philosophical, a monumentally important philosophical difference between freedom and communism. Could they do that? Would they do that? Demonstrably, I think Robert Kennedy would, Jr. Interestingly enough, he's a Democrat or running for the Democratic Party, who does support border security and the wall. So I I think he'd understand the distinctions between a wall that keeps people in and a wall that keeps people out. His candidacy has yet to reveal itself for what it fully will be. 
and I'm not sure if he's getting more independents who used to be Democrats or more independents who used to be Republicans right now that are showing up in the polls. But holy smokes, that man is fit. Did you see him working out? Oh, my gosh. I don't know if that was on Venice Beach or what, but whoosh. How old is he? Is he 69? Is he what the age Reagan was when he ran for president? He must be. He has. I think, I think he's about 69. Anyway, it's the sense of history. Yeah, is he really? Wow, impressive. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm struggling with my soleus muscle here in my leg. Do, do we have any runners in the audience who can tell? We had a, we had a, Bill, do you remember? We had a, um, we had a champion runner from ASU in the 70s call in once. I think he, I uh, can't remember his name. I think he ran something like a, did he run something like a five-minute mile or something like that or an under-five-minute mile? Anyway, how do you fix a soleus muscle from running? Um, sorry, why did I get distracted about that? It's the sense of history. Oh, Robert Kennedy, yeah. It's the sense of history that what John Kennedy talked about was indeed his words in his inaugural, A Long Twilight Struggle between those antipodes of governing, between freedom, democracy, if you will, and communism. He understood it. He was not bleary-eyed on this. He was clear-eyed on this. In fact, David, tell me if I'm wrong, he was stronger on this than even Richard Nixon in the 1960 campaign. He tried to out-out anti-communism Richard Nixon, at least with regard to such concepts as a missile gap. Exactly. Yeah, he talked a lot about the missile yeah. gap. And... Remember Robert Kennedy Jr.'s dad used to work for Joseph McCarthy. This family had a very serious anti-communist strain to it. This family is Democratic or was Democratic Party royalty. Who still in the Democratic Party could say such things as the import of such a twilight struggle and the difference between communism and democracy. It certainly would come with a choke. It certainly would come with a cough or a stutter. It certainly won't come from the leadership of the Democratic Party. It certainly you won't get it from Joe Biden. Certainly you won't get it from Kamala Harris. You had the runner-up for the Democratic nomination for the presidency praising the Soviet system, praising breadlines, praising the lack of consumer choice in the Soviet Union. Anyway, this day 60 years ago, I wish we had a Democratic Party like that that didn't go away with the wall. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John Dombrowski is the founder and president of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. His website, great place to reach out to him and learn more for, uh, about his organization, is grandcanyonplanning.com. He's also the host of his own radio show, The Word on Wealth, heard every Saturday morning right here on 960 at 7 a.m. Happy Monday, John. Oh, happy Monday, Seth. How you doing? I'm doing fine. Do you have a producer for your radio show? Oh, I do not. I kind of... I understand the temptation. Yes, because mine has been <laughs> my producer has been refractory and recalcitrant. Well, he's awesome, though. Yes, and awesome, all, all three at <laughs> once. Yes. 
What's interesting in the news today? We're going to learn some stuff tomorrow, aren't we? Uh, a lot of morning data will include we'll, – we'll be getting home sales, durable goods, consumer confidence, yeah. that kind of thing, right? Yeah, it's a big uh, reporting day on some economic news. Uh, I think that uh, that's why the market was kind of just a little bit flat today. It was down slightly, but uh, nothing of any real significance. Wanting to hear the news. Yeah, okay, good enough. And it's funny, you know, it's one 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 sneeze in a big part of the country kind of shadows out all covers up a lot of the other news. I mean, you go to the Wall Street Journal or CNBC or some of these standard places, and it's still a lot about Russia. But but yeah yeah. But there are still these these stories about inflation. There are still these stories about what, whether we will have a recession or not. I mean, they they still are there. You just have to <laughs> hunt for them a little bit. But nothing yeah. nothing terribly new in the analysis just yet that I can tell. No, I think the biggest issue we had more recently was the uh, debt ceiling issue, which once that got settled, a lot of the other things had gone away. We saw the markets really uh, have a nice uh, bit of an an increase over the last few weeks since since then, up until last week when we saw a little bit of a pullback. But I think a lot of people expected that, Seth, because the market had run up so quickly after that debt ceiling issue had, uh, you know, been settled, um, that, you know, a pullback was probably... Uh, in the cards. The real question is, is, yeah, are we going to have a recession or are we not going to have a recession? I, I believe the indicators point to most likely, if we do have one, it would be very mild uh, if we have one at all. That seems to be the direction that we're headed. Again, we have to wait for the Fed to see what they're uh, going to be doing You know, with the next rate hike. It's very possible we'll see another hike, but I think I think the general thought out there is, is that recession is probably not necessarily going to be something that's very deep, if at all. And if it comes, it'll probably come, what would you say, first quarter? It's a, it, it, it looks like uh, a first quarter thing. I mean, it's going to there's – there's going to be a vested interest from this administration to redefine it or downplay it and probably get it sooner rather than later as we get closer and closer into, into the middle part of – and end part of 2024, right? Yeah, I would have imagined that if, if it would have been better if they would have had a recession and we'd already be leading out of the recession. Because <laughs> right. usually when get we, the chicken you know, pox and get it over with. Yeah, right. Get it over with and then show how good we handled it yeah. right, as, a, as, a, as a country and an administration, if that's the case. But the longer that this goes on and the uncertainty continues, uh, the harder it is for you know the current administration to take any credit for something that hasn't happened or, you know, by, by think, saying things are better than they are. Um it's it's going to be uh, I don't know right it's probably going to be end of this year if at all okay. or early next year okay. I, I really don't have uh, the crystal ball on that one Seth and I don't think anybody does it's all just guessing at this point we've been pushing it pushing it down the road it, kicking the can down the no road I know but it'll be year. really interesting given some of the discussion we've had with regard to inflation and the home and housing markets it'll be really interesting right. to see what a recession does to that because it sounds to me like if there's one market that should be really biting its nails on both those fronts it's that you know, that, that may be the case, but if you look at the sectors of the market, when you look at the home builders right now, yeah. they have done extremely, their stock prices and performance and profits have done extremely well, even though, you know, we have this uh, challenge with the real estate market now and, and the possibility of a pullback in that. I, 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 we talked about this a week or two ago. Yeah. I believe that the real estate market is not, we're not going to see what we saw back in 2007 and eight in the real estate market. And if people are waiting for that, you're probably not going to get that. 
Now, if you're waiting for another reason, which is high interest rates, expecting rates to fall, then you may be, uh, that's a better bet than uh, waiting for real estate prices to collapse. I just don't see it. Good call, John. Thank you. As always, thank you, brother. Happy Monday. You bet. Yes, happy Monday. Securities and advisory services offer the Creative One L- Securities LLC, a member of the recipient and investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Creative One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Thank you, Seth. You betcha. I am Seth, and we'll be right back. Boy, there are just some songs you just know exactly what they are from the first beat, don't you? Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Um you know, I'm thinking about some of the economic problems that we discuss as we do with John, and uh, I have pretty regular interactions with Congressman Congressman David Schweikert on this stuff on Wednesdays as, as well. I um, I I I still have you know these romantic thoughts that we could engage in a lot of growth and in a lot of improvement. If we could fix things we're not allowed to talk about, i.e. health, public health, and education, public education. Some years ago, well, you know the public health thing and how much it costs us. David's talking about it almost every week. And unless we can have conversations about type 2 diabetes and obesity, we're never going to save a dime on health care. And it's costing an awful lot of dimes. The education thing... Some years ago, Eric Hanischek, a scholar over at uh, Stanford, he, um, he, he's a really good econometrist on things and that cost with regard to our education system, like how much it cost our society to shut down the schools. Some years before that, he did an analysis, an analysis that has never fully left my mind about teacher quality. And if you just removed 8 to 12 percent of the poor performing teachers in our students' classrooms, the net positive effect of that would be the equivalent of something like $100 billion, which is more than the Department of Education. And... Over the lifetime of the student, it would become even more than that. I got to think that when you're looking at what we're doing with public education now, and all we see are these reports from the National Assessment of Education Progress, known as the nation's report card, report after report showing Worse than what we used to lament. What we used to lament was that for all our education spending, these scores were just flat. They just flatlined. We weren't, we weren't improving. We weren't declining. We were just staying the same. No matter the amount of money input, we were, the achievement results were just staying the same. But that changed over the last three years, four years, particularly due to the school shutdowns, where it's not flat anymore. It's decline, decline and decline. We are losing numbers that we had held steady with. In math, for example, the most recent report on eighth grade math was we had the steepest declines in 50 years. The money increases, the scores go down. You have to think 
that when dealing with economic issues, one of the most important things you can do for an economy is have a serious education system. Yes, a serious public health system. Yes, a serious series of systems, including judicial, law enforcement, and you name it. But for long-term achievement and long-term growth, obviously, it's education, which used to be our education system used to be, um, you know, one of the models for the world. Certainly everything from elementary and secondary to higher. But that's not what's happened lately, especially with the power of the teachers' unions, your Randy Weingarten types. And when we talk about adding money to education budgets or whether we're talking about COVID funds going to schools— The question is how much, of course, but also where. There's all this discussion about accountability for the money we're sending to Ukraine or money we send anywhere, and that's right. Why is there not the same question when it comes to the money we spend on education and where that money is going? The Washington Free Beacon has a story out that's just maddening about about what Secretary of Education— Cardona said in response to the negative results on our nation's report card last week. He was talking about how much money and historic resources President Joe Biden funneled in to our education system under the American Rescue Plan for COVID, $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan. Well, break it down at the Washington Free Beacon, and you will find in North Carolina, for example— The Wake County public school system over the three years of COVID spent, get this, 78.5%, can we call that 80%, 80% of its total pandemic relief funding on salaries and employee benefits. It didn't go into the classroom. It didn't go into anything having to do with student achievement. It didn't have anything to do with technology for students or books for students or tools for students. It didn't have anything to do with students at all. Employee benefits. Chicago Public Schools, a district where union teachers repeatedly refused to return to the classroom during COVID, similarly spent 77% of its pandemic money, again, why don't we just call it 80, on staff bonuses, salaries, and benefits. Why, 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 can we, why can we not rest our arms around the fact, rest our heads around the fact that in these nearly knee-jerk routine responses to these neg- negative education scores, the, the, the knee-jerk response, which is always, well, we underfund, we underfund, we underfund. We don't underfund. This is a country that spends about $800 billion a year on K-12 education. We don't underfund. It's that we misfund. We have, a, we have a perverted view, a disoriented view, about where the money should go. Meantime, with the stranglehold so many of these unions have on education dollars, those salaries, those benefits, it's maddening to find out how much collusion there was between the teachers' unions and the education department and the CDC in not teaching students during COVID, 
the thing that is most responsible for these declines. And there's a story over at Just the News. That's John Solomon's group, right? Natalie Middlestadt writes, The country's two largest teachers' unions had direct access to the education department during the pandemic while parents had no voice. Michael Chamberlain, the director of Protect the Public's Trust, in a recent episode of John Solomon Reports, said research found extensive coordination between the two main teachers' unions and high-level officials in the Department of Education, namely the American Federation of Teachers and the National Education Association, all about keeping the schools closed. You know, at some point in this election that we're facing in 2024, we're going to not only have to be talking about a lot of things having to do with foreign and defense policy, it would be good for one of the candidates or all of the candidates, particularly on the Republican side, to talk about making education the issue for the Republican Party once again. Used to be in the 90s, Republican, everyone, everyone, both sides would say, I want to be the education president, just as they run for governor. I want to be the education governor. Haven't heard enough about it from the Republicans. They need to own this issue, too. Bank failures, stock market volatility, possible recession, inflation that isn't uh, easing up. Where do you go to invest? Why Refi has an answer. They have an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in the secure collateralized portfolio from Why Refi. Why Refi is headquartered here locally. I encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been, and I can tell you, you won't get a sales pitch, and no one's going to ask you to sign a thing. When you meet with the team at Why Refi, you'll see why I trust them, and you can too. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm where you can earn up to a ten and a quarter percent rate of return. That's right, a ten point two five percent fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest the letter Y then R E F Y dot com. Or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-34. 888-Y-REFI-34. A little bit of errata. I made a mistake on my uh, numbers in the last segment. I, If you heard me slow down, I, I kind of thought in my head, I, I'm not sure I have this right. And I didn't. Uh, I understated Eric Kanishik's research on teacher quality. I looked it up over the break to make sure I got it right. And I got it wrong. I replaced a T for a B. Uh, when he talked about uh, replacing the 8 to 12 percent of poor performing t- teachers and how that would be worth about $100 billion over the lifetime of a student, I got that wrong. It's not $100 billion. It's $112 trillion. You heard that right. $112 trillion to our economy by removing the 8 to 12 percent of our poor performing teachers in our nation's classrooms. Think about $112 trillion. You solved our national debt four times over, five times over. Think about that. Think about that when we talk about teacher quality. And think about the strength of the unions I was talking about when you find such resistance to evaluating teacher quality. I know the objections to it. How do you check? How do you know? How do you, how do you test a teacher's quality? There's plenty of ways to do it. Uh, plenty of ways. Uh, how, how do students do year over year, of course, a value-added way. But you and I both know another thing, too. David, you know this from when you were in school. 
elementary, secondary, college, everyone knows who the good teachers are. And everyone knows who the bad teachers are. It's not a secret. It's not that hard. We don't need to find elaborate demonstrations of the obvious. And we don't need to find elaborate demonstrations of the obvious by methods that are obscure. All right. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back.